The wealthmanagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For information and show notes, go visit lpl.com slash advisor innovation. Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening. This is the Advisors Innovation Podcast, which, as you hopefully know by now, is just simply my excuse to talk to people I think are moving the business of financial advice forward into new and interesting directions. And for that today, I'm thrilled to be talking to Brian. Brian has a lot of credentials. He's authored or edited a few books. Uh, I don't want to embarrass him, but he has been called by folks who know these things, one of a small handful of leading thinkers around the psychology of money. Is that embarrassing, Brian? Is that is that too a grandiose? A little, yeah. little bit embarrassing, yeah. Well, you, get, you got to take it because this is what people say about you, so you don't have a choice. Uh, you know, The Geometry of Wealth uh, is book, uh, second book, I think, published in 2018. Really touched a nerve, I think, with a lot of folks both inside and outside the industry. Had sort of an ambitious, I think, successful attempt to reframe how we think about money, success, and wealth. And we'll touch upon that in a minute because I think it encapsulates a lot of your thinking and your work. But I'm also interested in your most recent entrepreneurial venture. You are the co-founder of Shaping Wealth. Uh, you and some colleagues are building a platform to help financial advisors use some of those insights to help clients rethink what it means to achieve what you call funded contentment. And maybe we'll start there because I think this idea of funded contentment is one that keeps popping up uh, in your book and, and in discussions with you. What do you mean by it? Give us a definition of funded contentment. So funded contentment is another way of saying what some people call true wealth. And the definition of funded contentment or true wealth is the ability to under, underwrite a life that is meaningful to you. True wealth or funded contentment is the ability to underwrite a meaningful life. And the genesis of that, which is important, and I'll tell the shortest possible version of it, is that I had been writing in the field of behavioral finance for a while, making better investment decisions, building better portfolios. And, you know, the light bulb went on and the light bulb said, well, who cares? It seems to be the end of the process that you're talking about, but what comes first? And I realized that nearly a quarter century career in the money industry, what people often wanted to talk about, but didn't really get into because they didn't have the frame and the vocabulary and the mental model and, and the permission was funded contentment. They wanted to know if they were going to be okay. They wanted to lead a meaningful life and they wanted money to be part of that. It's an inescapable part of life. So you want it to be positive and constructive. So yeah, funded contentment seems to have touched a lot of people, mostly, thankfully, not in our industry, just normal people, friends and neighbors, people from other parts of the world who have used the term as an opportunity to think a little bit more deeply about where money fits into a meaningful life. Yeah. And I think it gave people permission to say, hey, this entire money game isn't all about maximization. There's other ways to approach it. And if I have the other kind of stools of the, or in your, in your analogy, the other parts of the triangle in place that I can think about money and maximizing money or efficiently deploying resources in a different way. Is that fair? 
Yeah. Uh, let's take your word maximization and, and counterpose it to a better word, which is optimization. So if we course through basic economics, there's sort of one value judgment that's made, you, usually implicitly, sometimes explicitly, but it's right there in every textbook that we, we've all seen, which is that more is better. And okay, that, that's the hypothesis, at least. That's the claim. It's also the value judgment. But we know from many elements of our lives and our experiences, we know from disciplined research and social psychology that more isn't always better and that sometimes more is worse. And that the question of how can I get more is dwarfed in importance and relevance by the question of how much is enough. And so when we embrace funded contentment, which again, is just sort of, I think, a, a clever phrasing of th- something we, we've all thought about in, in, our own, in our own frames, then we can get into the questions that people are really asking, which are, how much is enough? Am I going to be okay? Does money buy happiness? And one thing I've noted is that in just seeing how the industry operates, has, has operated, there's often not a lot of space to get into that because once you do, you realize that so many parts of our business are quantifying the irrelevant and at high fee. And if, if we actually went to the places we wanted to go, a, a lot of people wouldn't have the lucrative careers that they do, which is, you know, on my part, um, a bit irreverent and maybe offensive. But the fact is, I've been inside the machine for a long, long time. And these questions of enough and okay and happiness that we really want to talk to are often not profitable. Yeah, and uh, you you have been inside the uh, asset management industry for a long time, mostly on the institutional side, right? Uh, uh, hedge funds, uh, mm-hmm. uh, alternative investments. Yep. Uh, you've been there. You know, I, the industry is filled with wonderful people, uh, people of, of good uh, uh, nature for the most part. Uh, but there's just such a gravitational pull somehow uh, around asset management that just seems to seep into everything that we do. I mean, the Super Bowl commercials, for God's sakes. I, mm. You know, it's a... Uh, uh, every conference we go to, you know, I've been to a lot of them. What's spoken on stage is not funded contentment often. It's how to squeeze a few more basis points out of a, you know, smart alpha portfolio. Uh, you're, you're trying to swim against that, uh, that, that gravitational pull. And it, and it seems almost that it's getting stronger. I, I would maybe argue as, as the bull market continues to, to roar up until recently. Yeah. It, so it, it, there's trends and, and, and counter trends in, in all of that. I, I think the bigger picture point that I'd want to make is that, you know, in addition to learning from economics that more is better, we learned something actually profoundly true, uh, which is that incentives matter. And so you're correct to say, because so many of my friends, uh, and I'm biased, but you know, they're good people. They work in this industry. They're in asset management, wealth management, banking, private equity, venture, crypto, like nice people, good people, people that you'd want to have a beer with, you'd want to go on vacation with. However, because at the end of the day, it's incentives that matter. If you work for an organization where your incentives are to sell stuff, uh, sell more stuff, then that's what you're going to do. You're going to convince yourself that this small cap growth fund uh, 
or this intermediate bond fund or this particular you know, new crypto investment is the right thing for people. And as, uh, as a result, that's, that's what you think are, is, is, is a good thing. When you no longer have those incentives, then you can speak, I think, a, a little bit more freely. And um, I, I guess that's part of what I'm trying to do at, at this stage of my career. Yeah, no, it, it, uh, I think that's true. And I'm thinking about you know ways that I think some advisory firms and financial advisors on the independent side, kind of not attached to a uh, product uh, bank or someplace selling proprietary products, uh, have tried to optimize client outcome as the uh, the measure of success. But I think it's really difficult. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, beyond client surveys, client questions, how do you, you know, say, listen, we might not have had the greatest returns uh, in the in the industry, but, you know, our clients are happy. Our clients are content. It seems like a difficult kind of spongy thing to put into. And I'm happy about that. You know, we, as human beings, we are not born as calculators and we're generally enumerate. So even of us, those of us who you know, have done okay in the field of finance and n- know the numbers at a deeper level as human beings, we're, we're, we are enumerate. If I gave you a, you know, a, 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 a math problem that would take a calculator a fraction of a millisecond to solve, it would take you several minutes and, and you still might get it wrong. But the point is that that's completely besides the point. We're not born as calculators. We're, we're born as storytellers. We're born as um, meaning makers. We're born as risk takers, but not in the quantitative or statistical sense, but in the sense that we need to put ourselves out there into the world, make decisions, hope that they work out, plan as best as you can for them to, to, to work out. So I'm actually totally on board with the squish. And coming back to the industry, there's a lot to be done in terms of you know how do we allocate our personal capital in, in the stocks and bond and real estate and alternative markets how do we build portfolios you, you know there there's a thousand and one things that get done and those are worthy of ample compensation I'm not uh, you know not not trying to say that it's not but I am trying to say that there could be on the margins a, a, a values readjustment where we focus on what really matters. And one, I think, good thing to come out of a very bad event. So a, a silver lining to the pandemic is that there's been the opportunity for just about everybody to ask themselves, because God knows we had enough time sitting at home doing nothing, you know, to ask themselves what the hell am I doing with my life? Like, is this where I want to be? And so you have something, you know, that's commonly referred to in the press as the great resignation. And that's specifically on the issue of labor markets and people quitting their jobs and looking for new jobs and, you know, a fair amount of rotation there. Uh, I step back and I call it the great recalibr. I don't know a single person, you know, uh, at least grown adult who hasn't rethought their career, where they live, relationships, uh, it's been an opportunity for us to, you know, what a strange, in some ways, wonderful opportunity to put the entire world on pause, truly on pause, and have the time and space to, to you know, sort of look in the mirror and maybe question some things that we always found an excuse not to question 
and connecting that back to financial services and wealth management specifically, I think one of the reasons you're seeing interest in the types of things that I'm doing at Shaping Wealth with, with my team is that people are asking these hard questions, important questions of themselves, but they're also asking them of their advisor. And maybe they don't care as much uh, about investment performance. And maybe, in fact, they want to focus on the qualitative, the squish, the hard to the hard to measure. And that's putting the industry in a position where it needs to be better able, better trained, better, you know, with better perspective on a life well lived. And that brings us all the way back to funded contentment. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a resetting of the values. And and I think a lot of advisors are very on board with this mission. I think they struggle a little bit with how to put it into practice. You know, it, it sounds diminutive and I don't pejorative. I don't mean to but you know, we, we ask advisors to be uh, life coaches, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not uh, investment managers. Uh, and advisors, you, there's there's a, a limit to their efficiency. There's a limit to their time. And if you're asking each advisor to you know hold the hand of a client and and be their you know best friend and and confidant and uh, life coach uh, on all things uh, beyond just money. Yeah, that takes a lot of time. I, how, how do you think about how advisors who are trying to make this transition to away from investment maximization to optimization, funded contentment, how, how do you see that transition going? Uh, what do they need to do? How are they doing it? Is there, is there a way forward? Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I would say it's more of an evolution and less of a radical shift than, than you partially just portrayed it. I mean, let's just start with the premise that almost all financial advisors care genuinely and maybe even deeply about the families that have entrusted their money to, to them in terms of building portfolios and having insurance and, and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of financial planning conversations, the ones that take place behind closed doors, the ones that sometimes involve you know, crying in a box of Kleenex, it, it's hard to meet an advisor who hasn't at some point in her career said, geez, I feel like a therapist. I feel like a, psych- a, a psychologist. Because money is such an uh, emotional lightning rod because fear, greed, joy, envy, anger, happiness, all those things kind of course through and are amplified by money. It's not surprising that you know it becomes this emotionally fraught topic in the context, uh, in that narrow context of, of financial advice. So, in some ways, the industry is is already there. Uh, you know, so you've you you've got th- that phenomenon, and then you combine that with the field of behavioral finance, which has become very popular in the last ten or fifteen years. I mean, when when you can have a movie starring Brad Pitt that's about one of the key ideas in behavioral finance, you, you know the field has arrived to, to some extent. But the darker element to that is that behavioral finance is to some extent just an entertainment complex. They're interesting ideas and they're clever and titillating and funny and, and revealing. But the fact is that you know how you actually "Quote unquote," use them is you know still largely a mystery or a source of confusion and frustration. 
So combine the two things I just said. One is advisors care about their clients and often serve as coaches and counselors. I mean, they're not all in life coaches, but they're there to talk about the things that really matter, the, the high points and the low points in, in life. And then you've got you know a field of applied behavioral finance, which at least directionally is, is correct. Evolution, not revolution, uh, how do we as an industry do better by our clients, not by giving up providing good investment products, selling good insurance policies, building the right portfolios, establishing and maintaining a plan. Like We're not replacing, we're layering because the lower you go on those layers, the more those elements become commoditized. You know, you know, like 20, 30, 40 years ago or 30, 40 years ago, you had advisors, but they were brokers. They, they were just selling securities at, at very high margin and, and that's been competed away. And then you go up the value chain and you realize that, well, portfolio construction, asset allocation, that's sort of been competed away. It's not like the average advisor has an edge in building a efficient portfolio. Uh, then you get into planning, which used to be kind of special, but now it's kind of commonplace. And so it's reasonable in the context of any capitalist industry to say competition and technology have changed the dynamic here. And what am I going to do that's both better for my clients and better for me as a business person? And elements of coaching, uh, which is a big and vague word that even, you know, given what I do for a living, I still struggle with how to define that. But, you know, that coaching element to it, it's both the right thing to do for your clients and it's the profitable thing to do for um, your business, for your, uh, you know, for your peers, your colleagues, your team, your firm. And, and what I see every day in the context of the business that I've launched is that there are some, not all, not most, but there are some firms who are making the investment of money and time in getting better at this stuff. And I say stuff deliberately because yeah. it's just a lot of stuff. There's a lot of moving pieces. There's so many different ways to think about helping people achieve funded contentment, which is ultimately what we want to be doing. But to get there, man, you know, it's just sort of a, it's a, it's a pretty long list of ideas and concepts and mental models and tools and, and, and forms of engagement that can get us there. Yeah. And uh, I, I like what you say about life coach slash counselor. It's something about counselor idea is is important and advisors want to move there you're right maybe not most but many forward-thinking advisors understand that that's the place to, to to go they lack the language and that seems to be the biggest impediment right i mean i can sit across the table from a client and say you know uh, i want to ensure you have funded contentment beyond that what does that mean in that client's life. Yeah, can uh, I can I press on can yeah, I press on please. that issue because it's really really important and I'm yep. it's it, it's it's a it's a really astute observation uh, and, and we're not going to talk about Ludwig Wittgenstein and sociolinguistics Why or not? anything I like that. But, can, but, can we do the, that? But, well, we can, but I don't <laughs> think you or your audience would enjoy it. Um, the fact is that language shapes our reality and some would argue that language creates our reality. And when we don't have a word for something, or we have multiple words for something and we don't know which one is appropriate or, or, or effective, all of those create forms of, of con confusion and distress. You know, I'll refer to one of my favorite writers and thinkers in the world, Brene Brown, who, you know, internally we joke that she's sort of the patron saint of, uh, of, of, of shaping wealth because she brings such a, a tidal wave of, of wisdom into this world. And she has a book that came out recently 
I think called the Atlas of the Heart, which sounds a little woo-woo, and, and maybe it is. But the premise of the book is that we need a language and we need a vocabulary to talk about our emotions. And that, that book is, is almost like a glossary of emotions. I think she runs through like 79 emotions and says, well, what is greed? What is fear? What is, you know, and it's not at all about money. It, it, it's completely not a topic for her, but take that exact same framework and move it into our money world, David. And let's ask, do we have the right vocabulary? Do we have the right words to talk about the things that connect money to a meaningful life? And I think the answer is absolutely, completely no. We, we, we do not. A lot of what I've been, you know, so I've written two books, I've edited a third, that, that writing is a passion. Now I've built a coaching practice on top of my, my writing. And in some ways, so much of what I'm doing boils down to providing people words and sentences, concepts and mental models to grapple with, uh, to embrace the problems uh, and challenges and opportunities that they have in their life that absent the word, they just don't know what to do it. It becomes a gut instinct. It becomes something, but you're not sure what it is. And until you know what to call it, and, and so money, I mean, that's what we're talking about. And I was just talking to some clients about this um, uh, within the last day. We, we think about how we were taught about money in seventh grade or ninth grade. You know, it's a unit of account. It's a means of exchange. It's a store of value. Well, those are all technically true in, in the most narrow and uninteresting ways. But, you know, and I'm not going to rattle off a dozen, but there are a dozen or more things that money really is in our life that we can come to terms with. It is a podium. It's a it's it's a it, it's an opportunity for us to speak to the world. You know, think think about uh, Elon Musk and Twitter, uh, and the world's richest man buying one of the most important social media platforms. So money is a language. It's a technical language. It's an emotional language. It's a cudgel. I mean, it's a source of power. Think about how money figures into so many dysfunctional or functional relationships. It's a time machine, meaning that you know we think about where we want to be, we think about where we've been, and we often do that through the lens of through the lens of money, and so on and so forth. So language is critically important here, and it might sound academic or obscure, but I'm telling you, man, it is centrally constitutive to us leading healthier lives with money. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It also strikes me that the language that we need to get past and move beyond, namely money as a uh, barometer of personal value, right? Uh, you know, the richer you are, clearly you're more valuable to society than, you know, someone who's poor. You know, the more you're paid, the the more uh, people value what you do. Uh, it, you know, this notion of status, money as an indicator of, of worth all seems to be pretty deeply ingrained, at least in, in my experience, but completely not helpful. So I half agree with you, okay. meaning that those are prominent and important. <clears throat> those are very much kind of the tip of the spear in, in terms of, you know, some of the emotional vulnerability that we have surrounding money. The half that I would maybe... I don't know if I'm disagreeing, but I would just fill out or extend is that that's who we are. And so, you know, we can 
forget linguistics, we can go over to sociology and anthropology and talk about status. And the fact is that um, there is a 20, 30,000 year history of this idea of status and how we operate in groups and, and who the leader of the group is and, and how people get along. Like status is one of the most foundational elements of humankind and, and human organization. And it ain't going nowhere. So one thing I think anyone, but financial advisors collect, you know, specifically, you know, should, should consider is that we don't want to pathologize normal human behavior. We, we have this awful, awful word in our industry, and that word is irrational. And that word is, um, it's not just useless, it's damaging. Because when we look at how others behave and, and decide and conduct themselves, when we say, well, they're just being irrational, it's a pretty quick on-ramp to a road where you've chosen just not to understand where somebody's coming from. And maybe that's the road that you want to go down. That's, that's totally fine. But you know, what we've inherited from, from economics among you know, some of the other things I've talked about is this idea that you know, people are rational or irrational. I and my partners at Shaping Wealth and I, we are pretty strident in saying, let's jettison those words and just replace them with normal. And what is normal behavior? And, and one of the normal human behaviors is to be status oriented. It's genetically wired into who we are. It ain't going nowhere. And then given that is what it is, well, how do we move forward? How do we you know, take a bad situation, make it worse, a good situation and make it, make it, make it even better. Sorry, long, probably a, 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 long, a long detour to, to fill out one nuance, but I, I just wanted to make sure that when we, we talk about the, the, the way that we wish things should be, we don't lose sight of the fact that things are, and they're usually that way for very, very good reason. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, when, you are undertaking an effort to equip advisors with the language or with the tools or the mental models to have these conversations or with their clients. Tell me about Shaping Wealth. How did you think about taking the ideas that you formulated in the book, putting them onto this platform, from what I gather, and you can help us understand what it is you're building there, uh, a platform that will bring advisors along in this journey, uh, education, uh, there's some modules, uh, some actionable tips on how advisors can integrate some of this stuff into their practices, correct? Mm -hmm. I'll start with one very brief anecdote, which is that, you know, for uh, a number of years, I gave a lot of speeches on behavioral finance and, mm -hmm. you know, Kahneman, Tversky and Ariely and Thaler and all these fascinating ideas ideas that came from that discipline invented by Kahneman and Tversky, just thought-provoking, relevant, and in some ways applicable, but for the most part, just revealing and illuminating. So I, I gave many, and I published The Investor's Paradox, I think in 2014, which means I started working, thinking about it in 2010, 2011. So, you know, it's been many, many years now. And on the back of that book and some of the success that it had, you know, I was kind of out there at investment conferences de detailing uh, some, of, some of these ideas. And almost 
without fail to the point of annoyance and frustration, I would give speeches that were generally well-received, but inevitably met with one or two or five advisors at the edge of the the stage after I walked off saying something along the lines of, that was really interesting, but how do I use it in my practice? Mm-hmm. And it took me, you know, sometimes I'm not so, not so sharp. Uh, it, it took me a long time. I, I understood what they were saying, but it took me a long time to figure out kind of how to answer the question. And I could sort of stipulate that shaping wealth is the answer to their question. So I wrote The Geometry of Wealth five years ago or so, and that developed this idea of funded contentment and, you know, tackled some of the professional ideas I had in my mind, but also, you know, on a personal level, you know, father of three, married father of three teenagers, my parents are getting older, there's some challenges there, you know, allowed to wrestle with some of my ghosts in terms of the big question that I start off with on page one, which is, am I going to be okay? And so fast forward from that to here, you know, just continuing to get the question, well, how do I use this? What I've done is assemble a team of, of experts one partner, uh, Dr. Joy Leary's PhD in psychology, licensed clinical therapist, expertise in financial therapy as well. Uh, and then my other partner, Neil Bage, uh, who's based in the UK, uh, fintech entrepreneur who um, is uh, a passionate and, uh, and credentialed expert in behavioral finance and applied neuroscience. And then, you know, I write about the things uh, I write and, you know, I've sort of built a team mostly, you know, around us to create content and coaching for the wealth management industry in order to deliver and ground some of these ideas on how do you, I'll say it two ways, how, how do your clients achieve funded contentment? But as another level, how do you, the advisor, achieve funded contentment? So our one-liner, if, if I'm allowed, is that we train player coaches in the quest for funded contentment. Mm-hmm. And by you know, the player coach idea is, for those who understand it, and I think most people do, is that you know, you, you've got an athlete who is both coaching other athletes, but is on the pitch themselves. And you know, I hear time and time again from advisors, US, Canada, Europe, Middle East, Australia, you're asking questions of me that I've been asking my clients for years, but no one's ever asked me. And so what we're finding is that as we combine both a a journey of personal growth alongside a journey of professional development, we're we're able to kind of uh, uh, deliver these coaching experiences in ways that really land. And it's landing with teams of one or two people at small RIAs. And we have clients that have many thousands of advisors and, and then lots of examples in between. You know, we're relatively early. I'd say, you know, as, as a practical matter, we sort of launched January 1, 2021. Uh, so, you know, almost a, a, a year and a half later, if anything, the story that I'm telling seems to land with advisors there's then a question of, okay, well, what exactly do I do with this? And this the, is this the right program? And I've got 450 advisors who should, who should take these courses, who should consume this content. Those are blocking and tackling uh, issues for me as the you know, sort of owner and manager of a small business that, that I need to figure out. But the more important thing for our conversation and for your audience is that this idea of training player coaches in the quest for funded contentment is something that is resonating 
even better than I could have ever imagined with so many people. And we'll see where we get with that. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and, and again, this is sort of an idea that comes from the institutional side as well, right? I mean, hedge funds notoriously have psychologists on staff to, you know, help maximize or whatever the uh, performance of the, the, the folks on the staff were for good or evil, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, this notion of the player coach inside the firm is great. And, and you're building a platform, I think, that can scale that efficiently across dozens of firms. So it's not always you and, or Joy in a conference room. It's, you're you're going to be able to do this at scale. Yeah, Correct. yeah, and and that's something we're figuring out over time. The institutional hedge fund psychologist example, you know, you think about Wendy on 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 billions. You know, she's not a player coach; she's a coach. She's not trading; she's never traded, but she understands what's going on in the mind of the trader. And you know, look, that's fine for what it is. It's 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 a, a you know very narrow and commercial exercise. I I think that what we're doing is trying to have a, a broad-based conversation with very practical consequences for how we understand and transcend the human experience of money. So I, I, I think I wrote a long time ago, I think our tagline is transforming the human experience of money, which sounds pretty audacious, but there is a human experience of money and financial well-being is really a real thing. We work with a holistic model of well-being that has four components to it, physical, emotional, spiritual, and financial well-being. The fact is that in the other three well-beings, physical, emotional, and spiritual, we have doctors, therapists, and clergy who help us out. And that help is widely available and it is legitimate. Uh, When it comes to financial well-being, given how messed up most of our money lives are, including elements of mine. I mean, I do for this for a living, but like, you know, there's, man, there's stuff. There's a lot of stuff to deal with on, on, on the personal front. Who are the helpers in this other, this fourth form of well-being? Well, the obvious answer is financial advisors, but most people don't have enough financial advisors and most people who even have one aren't having these conversations. Right. So I would say we're at the beginning of the beginning of trying to figure out how to improve this part of people's lives. Did you begin to trip upon some of these ideas? I know you have a PhD from University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you didn't remain in academia. Academia. What was your experience or or thoughts or uh, awareness of money growing up uh, that kind of maybe pointed you in this direction? Yeah. So that's a sensitive question. I'm going to give you some straight answers. And the good thing is that um, I've got receipts. Like I published a book on this topic with Josh Brown and you know I've got my money story or elements of money, money story in print. Um, a couple of years ago, Josh Brown published a, a book called How I Invest My Money. And he's a friend and someone I have a ton of respect for. So <clears throat> I texted him or rang him up and, and said, number one, this is good. Number two, you know, we should get a bunch of our buddies together. And do a book of essays of kind of, you know, money, real money people telling their actual money stories, not pitching their fund or anything like that. And uh, the book was extremely successful when it came out. It, 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 it seemed to, it seemed to resonate and like the experience we're having now inside shaping well with our clients, what happened then with the 25 contributors is that many of them said, geez, no one's ever asked me like what my money story is. And this has been my career for 15 or 18 or 27 or 32 years. 
it was pretty remarkable to see. The short of my money story is that I grew up in a home where my mom and dad didn't like each other at all. And thankfully, at a certain point, they got divorced, but I, I would say not soon enough. And the central currency, if you will, of their disagreements were money. Uh, and they fought about it constantly. And it sucked. It, it, was, it was miserable. We were financially secure, so it wasn't a, a, a matter of not having food on the table or a roof over our head, but it was you know, that cudgel that I referred to briefly um, a few questions ago. The funny thing is, none of that sent me toward uh, the path that uh, I'm on right now. I- I'm actually on my fifth career, which is a whole different, long, nonlinear story. But I-, I, went to, I-, I went to college at the University of Michigan, I then graduated, went to the University of Chicago to get a PhD in the social sciences. You know, I sort of studied the, the, the history of, of, of capitalism and ha- how this whole thing hangs together. So, you know, what I'm writing and talking about now, I, 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 if I put myself on the couch, the answer is, I, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe this has been a latent uh, issue or, or concern until my late 40s, now into my early 50s. But the fact is that I'm... You know, I've been writing about decision science and behavioral finance for the last 10 or 12 years, and this company is a couple years old. And if anything, yes, it does give me some perspective on some of the stuff that happened uh, 40 plus years ago. I think that's less interesting than the fact that I'm finding, you know, this, that the audience for this sort of material, this sort of training to be overwhelming. There's a lot of people, and we use this word at the very beginning, there's a lot of people who want permission to really get into this. And a lot of those people seeking permissions are the financial professionals themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you been successful in finding a financial advisor that uh, tackles these topics? <laughs> uh, yes, sort of. I, I, I mean, I've got you know, many of my friends are financial advisors who I think are very thoughtful about many of the things that we're thinking about. So just as a matter of my social network, I have a lot of support. I do, in the recent past, have a financial advisor uh, of sorts who, if anything, keeps me organized because, you know, we're, Tracy and I are in our early 50s and aging parents and three kids and a bunch of investments and uh, you know, just the, the paperwork is a nightmare. And, and, you know, I know we've been sort of waxing philosophical for a while now, but, you know, the, mo- the most difficult and frustrating part of money life for many people, including me, is just keeping all the logins and passwords and files straight. So, yes, I have a planner th- that he and that team are very good at keeping me organized and a few other things. It's a little bit of a awkward dance because... I coach people like him for a living and he knows that. And so he kind of repeats me back to me, which believe it or not, I don't enjoy. <laughs> yes, I, we need help in the same way that I have a physician and a rabbi and sometimes a therapist. I also have a financial advisor. So to some extent, uh, I have my four sources of well-being covered, albeit in an incomplete and sometimes stuttering way. Well, I think it's true for all of us increasingly. Uh, 
Brian, this has been great. I really appreciate your time. Uh, and we'll be looking for Shaping Wealth as you roll out uh, the, the program and the platform to more and more firms uh, and maybe raise the visibility of it some. I think it's exciting, an exciting initiative and, and very much needed in the industry. So thanks very much for your time here. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, David. And this has been the Advisor Innovations Podcast. Thanks very much for listening. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member of FINRA SIPC. LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.